0: Hi, everyone. Welcome to the podcast, a very special episode of the podcast.
1: I am Tati. Hi, guys, and I'm Yakini, and this is the podcast you've been waiting for. We are so excited. So excited. A romance in
0: color first. This is our very first men's romance roundtable. Yay! 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 (laughs) And we are here with four dynamic fellas who are going to talk about romance and and their feelings about romance and romance books and movies and a little bit of something in in between. And so I'm going to have them introduce themselves and answer the question after they introduce themselves, what was your introduction to romance, aka your romance origin story? So who wants to go first? I'm just gonna I'm just gonna go around Ron robin. So the person to my left is Mo. So Mo, you go first.
2: <laughs> Thank you, Tati. Hey, everybody. My name is Mo Shalabi, and I'm a Palestinian American author of literary fiction and speculative. Uh, I have dabbled in romance, Tati. Uh, unfortunately I feel like I'm really not good at it that's all I have to say about that <laughs> I, I've worked on it tried to craft it I'm really good at insta love and there's a reason why but mm. uh, that's yeah that's that's me uh, by the way my pronouns are he him
0: okay yep. thanks okay awesome. who wants to awesome who wants to go next I'm just gonna keep picking people okay RM that's the homie so he they definitely go next
3: So I'm Iron Virtues, and I am a romance author. Um, I currently have four books out, and a fifth coming out um, in the next month, which will be the third book in my flagship series, Gods of Hunger. Um, My pronouns are he, him, and I think that my introduction to romance it came at different intervals. Like when I was younger, it was obviously like Disney princess movies and you know, like that. Um, and then when I was, you know, 13, 14, I was definitely reading urban um, erotic romance too young. Ooh, but my goodness. <laughs> nobody was nobody was uh, looking over my shoulder at what I was reading. So I guess that was
4: okay.
3: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and then, um, I kind of took some time away from it for a while, but uh, uh, last year, I believe I read a book by Katie Robert and was like, oh, like you can do, like romance has come to a place where you can do a lot of different things with it now. Mm-hmm. So um, that's how I got back into writing uh, and mm-hmm. finishing novels and then publishing eventually. So,
4: mm-hmm. yeah. Cool.
0: And his books are freaking amazing that's all i'm going to say amazing if you love mythology with a multicultural twist then he is the person for you his work is the person for you if you like sex and erotica and all that stuff let me stop hyping up the homie let me stop hyping him up let me stop hyping him <laughs> up because i just want you all to go and just purchase purchase his books um so next we have my other homie my my homie for a long long time uh rory Uh, won't you introduce yourself and let everybody know about your area of expertise and things like that and your romance origin story? All right.
5: Thank you, Tati. Um I kind of feel like the voyeur in this (laughs) group because you all are the experts. You all have written novels and uh creative writing and done this. Um Uh, My pronouns, he, him, his. I am a DEI practitioner. I've been working in higher education for the last 15 years. Man, 15 years to even say that. Um, (laughs) Young minds, uh, young adults, as they like to say. Um, I'm also a public health professional Um, and I'm glad i'm on here because i'm used to the mechanics of talking about sex particularly i've worked in std clinics you know talking to people about you know safer sex you know options and what have mm-hmm. you it feels good to actually have a conversation about pleasure intimacy what that mm-hmm. looks like
4: mm-hmm. and
5: outside of the whole physiological and you know pathological side of sex you know yeah like a downer but we know we need to know that information um I would say at its most elementary level, my introduction to romance, um, I would even go before I was sexually active. I would actually go as a teenager, naive myself. And I would say, growing up on the far south side of Chicago, you know, in high school, on Sweetest Day, which is like our, the men's version of Valentine's <laughs> Day, as I like to say in the Midwest, Chicago is a real pretty sweet, Sweetest Day. But on Valentine's Day, we would buy carnations to give, like, or candy Grimm to give you know, your sweetheart or your crush in school. Like,
4: mm. like, <laughs> so, so when cute. I
5: think about the romantic element, you know, not the whole, you know, you need to lose your virginity or you should be sexually active, you know, peer pressure. I think about that. Like, what does that mean to send a flower to, you know, a girl you're crushing on or what have you. And so, yeah, that's mm-hmm. introduction to like romance.
0: Oh, that's so sweet. Oh, so mm-hmm. sweet. Carnation. Oh, I never got a carnation in
5: the growing up, so I don't know what that feels like. Um, I never got one either. you that. <laughs> We are young and they have no money, so carnations are cheaper than roses. <laughs> that is very true.
0: Okay, and last but not least, uh, Janaya, if you would. Oh. Yeah. Hi. Hi.
6: So, oh, sorry. <laughs> sorry, sorry. My brain heard the wrong name, so I was like, wait, what? Um, (laughs) uh, But uh, hi, uh, I'm Jamal Vinson. I um, I'm a uh, primarily a uh, science fantasy author, new adult. Um, I have been writing for basically my entire life. I've been um, an avid fan of romance ever since I was a kid. The current book I'm writing um, Champions is uh, a romance with enemies lovers and also very much uh heavy on sci-fi and mythology and just all these different sorts of things um and uh my first foray into romance aside from like crushing wrong people crushing wrong girls and everything like that
4: um
6: oh wait I understand my phone uh my phone is he she uh I'm by gender um and for me my first sort of foray into romance like in media was um <clears throat> outside of like Disney stuff it was um like show it was like movies like um definitely maybe I watched a lot of those growing up uh definitely maybe, definitely maybe a turn sunshine of the Spotless Mind, which is my absolute favorite um a good one. and uh just sort of various romance books over the years as a kid, and the one that really got me back into it because I kind of fell off it from reading just basically all um white uh urban basically reading all white fantasy books as a kid uh with the same sort of type of romance dynamic and everything like that that just made me that just basically turned me off of it off mm. of romance the thing that got me back into it was nicola yoon's the sun is also a star which is a phenomenal oh, book, I book. It's, a, it's a little bit old but it's a phenomenal book i love it Um, And that was the thing that made me just kind of, like, drive way more towards reading a lot more Black romance, or rather just non-white romance in general. Mm -hmm. And, uh, yeah. Yeah, thank you. That was beautiful. Yeah, I I absolutely
0: love The Sun is also a star. It was so gut-wrenching to me. And then I saw the movie, and I was like, okay, this is too much. Like, that was one of the few. Like, I'm not a big, like, movie to, you know— book adaptation mm. person but that was one of the few i think they got kind of right um it was some of the casting maybe but uh was a little shaky but overall the story i thought um itself was pretty good um so that was a beautiful beautiful uh thing um so we got this beautiful diverse panel of fellas here and i want to ask you know and rory kind of brought it up your ideas of and concepts of pleasure and intimacy, how does that inform how you think about romance? And how does that inform, particularly for my writers here, how does that inform your work? So Rory, I'm gonna start with you because I know as a uh sex health professional i know you say you don't get a chance to talk about intimacy and romance and stuff and pleasure like you want to so i'm gonna start with you so you get to talk first um (laughs) about that about those things and how does that kind of inform what you think about romance
5: oh it's oh okay where do i start all right and i I don't want (laughs) to occupy so much time because i actually want to the the other individuals here because you all have some some things i want to learn from also too but you know let me just start by saying this i i think with working in higher ed for 15 years and i need to preface this i think one thing i like about working on a college campus is that the running like joke that we have because i see myself you know student affairs administrator you know helping students navigate college Having questions about identity, so whether that's gender identity, sexual identity, you know, uh, relationships, um, stuff like that, <laughs> they all come talk to me. I'm like, I'm not a licensed <laughs> counselor, but you know, it's you know, training to be in the field and do this. But it's, I tell people, where was my Rory when I was undergrad? And I mm-hmm. say that not to say like we didn't have counseling center, we didn't have like the health center where you could talk, but I, the exposure. I, I, yeah. I think, and I think about even the first year of college where I lost my virginity, like again, I go back mm-hmm. into like very mechanics of sex, like mm-hmm. you're supposed to do this and i and, and I say that as someone's still trying to find out who he was as a person also too mm-hmm. um and what have you and and then you know having my brother tell my father and what have you it's just you know it's awkward <laughs> all the way. <okay. laughs> So yeah, it was, it was, it was the worst first time, but, you know, oh, gosh! but I say that to say, um, and I came from a pretty open family, you know, like we, we did talk about, but I still had some apprehension about having these conversations about sex. Mm-hmm. So I say all that to say where I am now, because I teach personal health and human sexuality and I talk about this. I'm amazed by how much still we're in 2022. 18, 19, 20, 21 year olds do not know about their bodies. They don't know about sex. And we know they're having sex. But on the flip side, there's a lot of research coming out and saying that young folks are not having sex. You know, Mm -hmm. Uh, Mm -hmm. and I think the the whole thing about how, you know, and again, because I don't kink shame or anything else, but even how porn if we're being honest has done a disservice particularly to young men in particular and these are conversations mm-hmm. i had because we talk about romance what you see in, in explaining that to young people is that that's edited like you know it's like <laughs> sex, yeah right. mm-hmm. happen mm-hmm. like that in and, mm-hmm. and you need to understand like foreplay is a thing <laughs> like you know your body has to respond you know whoever your partner is you know and getting in you know rhythm with your partner and so to have these conversations now I feel like I'm doing the service because I wasn't having these open candid conversations like what we're having mm-hmm. but I'm forcing myself as an instructor to have these conversations and I tell right. them I, they start laughing they you know and they were like I said oh this ain't awkward for me. I said, said, we're going to have this conversation. First of all, y'all enrolled. Y'all going to get a grade on this. So I need y'all to know the difference between a circumcised uncircumcised penis or, you know. Mm -hmm, But, you know, having this conversation about not just the mechanics of sex, but talking about, okay, what are you looking for in a partner? You know, sexual communication. And, you know, and talking like, what is pleasure to you? And getting students to define pleasure on their terms. So I just wanted to start with that because I think that's important. And I think sitting around uh, this podcast with authors, I think the way you all use literature and how we can use media, yeah, we can use that in a way to get across, you know, you know, sex, sexuality, and and in all and it all in all of its beauty in all various forms also too. So I wanted to bring that out there because mm-hmm. this is what I've been observing from a student to actually someone who's working with undergraduates as they yeah come to grip to
0: intimacy yeah yeah you're working with that pocket of like new adults who are just like just forming who they are and not really understanding who they are and i think this is a good way to segue into the writers in the group because they're the folks i think with literature with romance with sci-fi which has romantic elements and fantasy which has romantic elements is that a way to kind of break down like these concepts of pleasure and intimacy and kind of relate to other men you know about these things, anybody want to jump in with that or something? mo, yeah
2: so first of all, I want to say, Rory, thank you so much for your input, and I really wish I had met you when I was a teenager to talk about all that stuff really <laughs> Yes, uh, but additionally, I do want to say that I came from an, the opposite end of the spectrum, so you know there is a lot of openness when talking about sex and intimacy here in the United States um. Well, where I came from in the Middle East, specifically in Palestine, that topic is very opaque. So it's hidden under covers. It's hidden under the covers mm-hmm. of religion. It's hidden under the covers of traditionalism, conservatism. There's, It's a taboo area that we don't talk about until. And the until here is, you know, you get married and that's the only time you talk about it. Uh, literally, I've had, you know, I've had conversations with some of my married friends. I'm unmarried. I am the black sheep of the family. Uh, <laughs> I, I, this is a, a very sore topic in my household. Trust me. Um, but I've, I've had a lot of conversations with uh, with my married friends who have said that they had no idea how to approach sex until the, the day of their marriage. Wow! And wow. you can imagine how. Yeah, that, it's it's you know it's a difficult situation, right? Mm-hmm. And one thing that I found to be very helpful was literature in this situation. So I read books by some very famous uh, Middle Eastern authors like Nagib Mahfouz, who, who, who talks about sex so openly. Uh, there are multiple authors who talk about sex so openly, but again, it's a very sore taboo topic, except in, in their works, it's very, it's very highlighted and it's brought to light. And it's mm-hmm. done a lot of service, but you still see people who refrain from those types of books because it's still a shame. It's still taboo. Yeah. And I think when it comes to writing, this is this is the way that you break that taboo, specifically in places like the Middle East where anything mm-hmm. could happen and people mm-hmm. don't know that you know that much about the, these areas, these topics. Mm-hmm. Yep.
0: Ari, anything you want to say about that? Or
3: I mean. I feel like my experience was very. It was a very rough road to get to a place where I could uh, openly talk about it, but not because. Like, I was always a rebel in my family. Like, I was raised very traditional Me- Mexican Catholic. So it was very much also a lot of purity, a lot of um, taboo topics you didn't talk about. And a lot of it was because. You know, when I grew up and later, like other family members would talk to me, they would kind of describe um, a lot of the instances where there was like, you know, sexual assault. There was a lot of women in my family and I was raised by mostly women. There weren't a lot of men in my family and there weren't any good men. So there was a lot of conversations about everybody, a lot of people in my family getting their wires crossed about what sex and intimacy was versus sexual assault like how do you how do you pull those two things apart how do you inform yourself that it's okay to be intimate with other people when this is what you had to go through and it was multiple men in our family that were doing it, the so multiple women in our family so it was that thing too and then you know for me to come out as trans and you know have I mean, it was kind of a good thing in a way because even though I was trans and like I was a male, like I always knew that I was a male, you know, since kindergarten, whatever, I was still being informed by women. Um, So that was a good thing in a way. um, But was there a lot of internalized misogyny in our family with these women that were jealous of other women or, um, you know, they, you know, because they had these ideas that you know sex was perverted and and this and that, like they automatically had these ideas about other women that were more open with their sexuality because then they judged them based off that, like this wasn't good, you know it's not a good thing to be happy about or you know whatever mm. Mm. and in you know that same vein, I was also pretty much raising myself like I didn't really have like my parents were you know not great, um the adults in my life were not great, and a lot of it was because of the you know generational trauma. They weren't dealing with their stuff. They didn't believe, we didn't believe in, you know, uh, mental health, going to counselors. That wasn't. Oh, no, family. we ain't going to no therapist. Right. <laughs> it's wild because my mom works in behavioral health, but she could not, like the cognitive dissonance in my house mm-hmm. was so great. Because it was like, look, I can help other people. This happens to other people. This don't happen. Mm-hmm. Like, mm-hmm. I can do this because yeah. I have mental illness. I'm fine. Mm-hmm. you know what I mean but it's actually mm-hmm. like no you are also mentally ill and you're ruining your kids by not talking about it but mm-hmm. you know ready mm-hmm. to have that conversation um but you know when I got out of school like I went you know got a degree in undergrad and then went to I got my master's in forensic psychology so a lot of that informed the way that I thought about things that in for me like intimacy was such a It was like this thing that was frowned upon and like, no, you know, my parents didn't hug me like they didn't. And then, you know, my godmom, who was like my second mother, she didn't really hug because she was sexually assaulted as a kid. So Mm -hmm. she didn't like being touchy feely because she felt like it was a perverted thing. Like even that, even hugs or, you know, you know, sitting on your parents' lap or whatever, it was very much frowned upon. So it was a very hard thing to kind of, you know, get through that and learn for myself because like I said, I was reading urban erotic romance when I was 13, 14 years old. Mm -hmm. So trying to try and rectify what I was reading about these people loving each other and being comfortable with each other versus what I was seeing, which in a family where I'd never seen a healthy relationship ever. Mm -hmm. um, It was really hard to kind of take those apart and see well what's abuse and what's not abuse. What's mm-hmm. you know what is because you know obviously when you're in school you get taught well consent is yes or no. There's no in-between there's no gray area. Well that's right. Because you can say yes and still not mean it. You can be mm-hmm. coerced you can be convinced you can be persuaded. We didn't talk about those things. Mm-hmm. If it wasn't a no, then it was a yes. Like that was what you were taught. So right like, having to come out of that and then also you know you know, I'm getting comfortable with myself and my body, and and who I was, and who people wanted me to be, or who people saw me as, and who my family wanted to be, wanted me to be. So it was very hard to kind of like deal with all of that. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think now writing romance and reading romance has actually been a big key to me kind of learning, um, you know, the proper consent or proper what you're supposed mm-hmm. to expect from intimacy and romance and love like what at love actually looks like so i think it was a lot of wish fulfillment at first like writing obviously like my second book is based solely on trying to get people to understand the difference between consensual sex work and sex trafficking because a lot mm-hmm. of people conflate the two to try and make sex work this bad thing like you want right. you want right. to you want to believe that there's nothing good that can ever come from it and nobody does it on their own and nobody wants Mm -hmm. to do it. Like, no, that's not true. Like what you're realizing is you're taking this choice away from people. Um, and Mm -hmm. uh, I live in Vegas. So obviously there are a lot of sex workers. Like I went to, I went to school with so many men and women that were like, look, I got all my student loans paid off and I was stripping Mm -hmm. the whole time. Now I got a nice car and a house when I get out. And I'm like, mm-hmm. that's you baby, like, get your money. What are you talking right, about? Right. And then, you, know, mm-hmm. you know, we even had like professors who were like, yeah, I don't like sex work should be criminalized. Like it shouldn't be decriminalized. And I'm like, but you teach, you're teaching about yeah. sexual health victims, but you don't know the difference. Like you don't know mm-hmm. the difference. Mm-hmm. Like that's, we shouldn't be having you in these conversations. Like you don't belong to mm-hmm. conversation if you can't tell people what the difference is. Mm-hmm. So that was that. Uh. I definitely had to kind of get over and try and determine how I wanted to talk about these things through my work. Uh, Because obviously, like, I'm still in school, so I'm still writing, you know, papers and um, academic material, while also writing fiction, and wanting to still be able to, um, you know, honor the lessons that I've learned for myself. So, like, I mean, there's obviously a lot of people that write really good, you know, dark romance or things that kind of toe on the line or, mm-hmm. and I'm just like, I'm not ready for that because I'm still learning what's good and what's bad. And I think you really mm-hmm. have to know the difference, Like you really have to know those things before you can start towing lines and blurring lines, because otherwise it definitely comes off as you, you're condoning something that you don't mean to condone. Right,
4: mm-hmm. like, right. Mm-hmm.
3: It's definitely right. a lot of, Stuff that I learned, like a lot of self, uh, self-learning, self-teaching mm-hmm. that had to come from just internally and then like seeing the world where I was, because there was nobody to teach me. Like there was nobody to say, look, this is healthy and this isn't, and this is good and this isn't. Like if we didn't have sex education, you know, you got one class and it was basically just like, wear a condom if you're going to do it at all. Mm-hmm. Like absolutely, is really the only way to go. And it's like, this isn't realistic. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, it's definitely been uh, a lot of, of I'm still learning to this day and, you know, probably always will be, but it's like people have to be willing to do that. Even if you're not talking about it openly, mm-hmm. you got to be able to take the knowledge that like you got to listen. You got to be able to open your ears and listen. Like You can't be sitting there like willful, willfully ignorant because right. the people that we're talking about.
4: Mm-hmm.
0: Rory said you're going to have to explain dark romance to him. He's like, what is dark romance? <laughs> yeah that sounded intriguing I have to get a trope breakdown
3: I mean <laughs> a dark romance is I mean it's exactly what it sounds like like uh there's you know more violence usually um mm-hmm. there are some things that happen within dark romance that are okay in every romance and definitely not okay in real life like you can have you know your partner you know like there's mafia romance or whatever. Yeah, whereas, I was going to say
0: that mafia yeah, romance is a good. The
3: one. The heroine shoots the hero, and they fall in love later. Like you know what I mean. And and there are a lot of people who can read that and know. Oh, we don't do that in real life. Like that's okay. Mm-hmm. But not everybody can do that, and that's always right. the some thing. people might
1: be triggered, some of us enjoy it. Some of us, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm.
3: You know, and I hate. To,
1: I
0: hate. Yeah, and I hate to bring this up for Black History Month, but there
1: are <laughs> romances where
0: people are trying to make slavery Amen. and stuff yep. like that into, like, dark romance material. So that ain't working. That ain't working. That mm-hmm. ain't working.
3: And that's definitely... It ain't working. Again, like I said, like, there has to be a line. You have to be able to know what the line is. Like, it's one mm-hmm. thing to have a homeboy be like, look, we're beefing right now and I just shot you, but we are gonna make up. There's one right. thing, and then there's a different thing entirely where you're, like, slaves, because these are things that actually happened. Like, these are things that actually... You know, you know happen to people and mm-hmm. there was often where you were like well you know uh my slave master is in love with me like no no your property like we that's no consent yeah there is no consent here even if you like and it's the right. same thing with like you know why you know nobody's gonna try and sit up there and say uh statutory rape is okay because again there's not this okay like nobody can say yes to this there's nobody in this you know there's not two consenting adults right and consent to what's happening so i think that there's a lot like obviously power dynamics is a very big thing too is like you really have to think about what that looks Mm -hmm. like in the setting especially when it's contemporary because y'all doing this like (laughs) setting it in a historical setting like during slavery like bro this ain't like yeah, this ain't working. This ain't working. Like whoever yeah. told you it was working, and I know it was. Sorry, I know it was a white publisher that told you this was okay. Absolutely. It's not okay, and you need to start talking to your people and stop yelling at us every time we call you out. Because
0: or the new, or, or the new, the new one is Nazi romances, like people falling like Jewish captives falling in love with their Nazi captors. Wow, shit. Like I, we, I do not understand it, and I think that also plays into something extremely toxic about this i don't know this is maybe going a little crazy to the left but it's uh, this toxic masculinity that's wrapped up in this idea of like you said this power structure and and warping what ro what's romantic like it's it's you know to- this toxicity of, of of
3: masculinity is warping what's romantic um but I, I-, was, I mean the problem with saying that though with like barreling it down to toxic masculinity is oftentimes it's women writing these Consum-
0: or, and consuming it yeah right because
3: so right. like the most recent one where you know we were all mad on the timeline was about you know a plantation owner you know being the hero and this is a a biracial woman writing this book mm-hmm. but like you know, other black people said it wasn't okay. And then all of a sudden everybody's attacking black readers, black reviewers because they had something to say about it. But it's like you're 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 trying to represent a real, these are real people. Like this is a real issue that occurred and we are still feeling the effects of slavery so you mm-hmm. can't sit there and act like it was thousands of years ago it wasn't mm-hmm. like this country was built on it and still sits on it that foundation mm-hmm. that they built mm-hmm. so to come in here and have because you, you to think about it like i don't care who the author is at the end of the day the white publisher is making something off of it
4: mm-hmm. and y'all are
3: allowing them to commodify or what we did or what we went through what happened to us and our ancestors and y'all are just like stepping back like yeah i'll write that for you okay like that's not (laughs) even if that were what like you know what i mean like not like one yes that's not romance like that's not Mm -hmm. what romance is about that's not what we were looking for um but good try Mm -hmm. but it's also about the fact that this is a business and these people are making money off of it so again also um, taking into consideration
2: I kind of want to piggyback on what what you were saying just a while ago, and this is something that I read online too, but at the end of the day, what publishers look for is a product, right? And this is a business and it's, and and they want Mm -hmm. to sell that product. And Mm -hmm. a lot of times what happens, what ends up happening is authors will take a, a traumatic theme, a traumatic plot, and they'll commodify it at any cost just to get published so that book could be sold and that ends up hurting a lot more people than it helps and at the end of the day you know like you said you know so people have to be accountable for what they do but it's also important to understand that when it comes to publishing to them it's all about the product it's all about the money Mm -hmm. so if there's any way to commodify a trauma then they're gonna do it and it's it's Mm -hmm. very 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 sad because sometimes yeah. you know we write these books, and you you get feedback that it's not dramatic enough. You know, try to emphasize this, try to emphasize that, and wow. it changes, it it warps the work that you're working on. Mm-hmm. So, yeah,
3: mm-hmm. yeah. I mean, sensationalize
1: the pain. Mm-hmm.
3: Yeah, like you just you're. I mean, and that and that's something like I always talk about too. Is like y'all are, and I don't. I mean, obviously. If you see me on Twitter, you know I don't say anything nicely. I don't have a lot of self-preservation. <laughs> I'm always just like... Yeah, lying. he is I'm blunt. Lying.
0: I'm telling you. Yeah,
3: like, I'm, I'll just tell you the truth. And the truth is, y'all sold out. Y'all sold mm-hmm. out. Like, you're selling out your own people. Um, The people that you want um, to be vindicated by and uh, accepted by are not your folks. Like, those aren't your people. Like, the people mm-hmm. you're selling this trauma porn to, which is what it is, mm-hmm. You, mm-hmm. the people you're selling it to They don't they don't have your best interest in mind and they don't have your people's best interest in mind mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. the fact that you would rather turn around and yell at black people who are critiquing it instead of the people who made you write it mm-hmm. or the people who said it's okay to write it like the fact that y'all are willing to do that just proves how easy it was to buy your loyalty Wow. Because at the end because like once you're once white publishing has used you up and you gotta come back to your people, what do you think's gonna happen? <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah.
4: you know, yeah.
5: I can interject just a little because Ariam and Mo y'all stirred something and this actually intersects the conversations when I do culture competency workshops because those power dynamics that you're seeing in this, you know if we want to call it dark romance and romance, those are historical racialized sexual tropes about and stereotypes about people of color. And so when we're thinking about the very hypersexual black, the Jezebel trope, you know, the whole Indian princess, which I know from some stereotypical romance, not very dated, but also rooted in very, the fetishization of Asian women, you know, lot. Mm-hmm. I mean, we see this on college campuses. Like, these tropes play out even on the dating scene for our students. Mandingo fantasy on campus, you know, getting a black man. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it, it it's, right. it's funny, you know, because they're mm-hmm. using fiction, but... Yeah. They they're still rooted in this skewed reality of what yeah. people think. Oh, yeah, you know, on campus, all oh, you know, oh, that big dick. So you know, or yeah. you know, or you know, I'm gonna date an Asian woman because they're submissive and they don't, or they're very exotic. You know, these very you know fetishized mm-hmm. you know tropes of people of color, and it, it happens. It literally happens. Wow,
3: and we definitely can't yeah. all yeah. that. Like I've just because, and it's the thing too. Is like we can't we don't call it dark romance, but it's also like, it's not even like, they don't even put it on the shelf as dark romance because a lot of the publishers that are putting this stuff out call themselves. I mean, it's inspirational romance. It's often like Christian, uh, publishers. It's these people. Um, like we, you know, there's been a book about genocide, like heroes who have committed genocide and because somebody from the people they were killing fell in love with them all of a sudden it's okay um it's, it's very much like you know there was one book that was like you know we just went to you know the battle of wounded knee the battle, yeah that one and yeah we killed everybody but then one native american girl fell in love with him so he's been god has said you know what you're good now now he gets killed. a redemption arc yeah. for his whole, like, his whole plot. Yeah. And it's, and it's a white woman writing it. Who are you mm-hmm. to give anybody anything? Uh, yeah. Who are you to say that was okay? Like you're vindicated. You don't get to do that. No, yeah. Nobody gets to do that because the people who were in, like actually happened, like this is a real event that happened, mm-hmm. right? Like, this is a real event. People, real people died. Mm-hmm. And, they don't get to say, you know what, we forgive you. So why would you get to? And that's the big thing is like, the fact that there was so much pushback, like so many authors attacking readers and book bloggers and reviewers. And it's like, Mm -hmm. why is this not common sense? Like we're really arguing about, is genocide a redeemable offense? Like (laughs) we're we're really arguing about this. How are we arguing about this right now? And it's still happening. So what are y'all like? It's not like it's genocide. Like it's still happening. It's not something that oh it happened once, like hundreds mm-hmm. and thousands of years ago. Again,
4: mm-hmm.
3: it's this thing of like oh that's fiction. No, no, it's not. For a lot of people, it isn't fiction. So yeah. and again, it's not your story to tell, even if yeah. it was. So it's just that thing of there's no. They've they've kind of mythologized a lot of of these minority groups who it's happening to. And they've become like this, this just a plot device for white authors to utilize. And it's like, why? Like they're still here. But when we talk, you wanna, you know, we're here because you're yelling back at us and you're talking to us and you're talking shit to us. And it's like, (laughs) we're obviously here. Like you're, you're talking to us, you're acknowledging us. So. But pretend like you didn't know the kind of backlash that you were going to get when you have all these lines memorized to yell back at everybody when it goes off like you're a liar yes yeah, you're a liar. yeah. So-
6: and i something that this entire conversation has been sparking for me that i've been thinking about over the course of the entire thing which so i ended up having to drop before i there was weird connectivity stuff going on for me okay. um but uh Hi, I'm back now. Uh, This is me. But um, uh, something that this has always made me think about. um, So, uh, and to kind of take it a little bit out of the contemporary realm and a bit more into fantasy, where I feel like a lot of this, oh, it's just fiction. It's just, it's not real. Where a lot of this can sometimes very much happen and people feel a bit more justified with it. Is so. Current book that I'm writing is Enemies to Lovers. It has, uh, it's a sapphic romance, and the main character and uh, both of the main romantic leads are on opposite sides of a war. They've been on opposite sides of a war for their entire lives. And, for me, whenever it's come to people asking, "Hey, how do you write like an enemies to romance? How do you write like an enemies to lovers? How do you write like a revivals to lovers thing?" One of the um, before I would even get to discussing, okay, here's like how you do it in terms of implementation and structuring, I just had to set a couple basic ground rules of do not have the do not have either the romantic lead or the main character do anything that is utterly irredeemable you need to make sure that they have traits that are understandable and justifiable but you have to make sure that they don't do anything that would utterly read as abusive either to the characters to the love interest to anything in the story Like, and there's a limit to that and how much is deemed as ex- understandable depending on circumstance and i feel like that was something that um it's whenever i've like given people advice about it i've always been very like hey you cannot have your you cannot have someone be tortured by their eventual love interest you cannot have someone be bullied by their eventual love interest you can't Mm -hmm. in the event of like if, if, if it's a war okay yeah sure they're gonna try to kill each other but like Like, that's like someone understandable. Like, no, they're going to view each other as enemies, but like, they have to still be inherently, intrinsically good people for the romance to work and for people to be invested in it. And they have to realize, oh, I was at fault here. And that isn't something that you can't really, it's something that like you can't really always sometimes like. It's something you always have to be conscious of and you always have to make sure about the collateral damage as well. I feel like that's another big thing with it as well. And that could even apply to contemporary stuff. Like if you're having like, um, like mafia stuff and stuff like that, you have to consider how much damage does your character do and viewing them objectively, because the reader, if they're jumping into this world, jumping into this space with these characters, if you set sail to a toxic ship, they're going to try their damnedest to sink it. And it's something that I think people just don't really fully comprehend and realize. They think, oh, like, you know, they're really bad. But like, you know, they change later on. But no, you have to get people invested first. You have to show people why this is a good person. Yes, they can have flaws, but they cannot be evil or doing that line. They have to have Mm -hmm. some sort of, they have to be an intrinsically good person in some way, shape or form. There has to be some goodness that can be brought out of them, basically. But yeah, that's all I had to say, basically. (laughs) Yeah, that's a, that's a mm-hmm. beautiful
0: beautiful point because in trans, you can have a character that's interesting that's not really likable you know what i mean characters don't have to be likable okay there, there's this notion in romance and in fiction and stuff that your characters need to be likable absolutely not characters don't have to be likable for you to connect with them because they need to be human is what they need mm-hmm. to be they need to be mm-hmm. human and have this sense of humanity but at the same time they can't be irredeemable it is one thing to be a little bitchy little is one another thing to be irredeemable. You know what I mean. And so I think about this panel we have here of these diverse group of men, um, and you all come from different backgrounds. Uh, you know, black, black and Mexican, Palestinian, um, trans, uh, straight, uh, non-binary. All these things are going on, and these intersecting identities. How do you feel like? This idea of intersecting identities and like romance, kind of, you think they're kind of at war with each other, or are we kind of like getting to a point where people can kind of like say mm-hmm. romance? I can I can view romance in an intersectional type of way. Mhm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Mocha. Y- y'all don't have to raise your hand. Just talk. <laughs>
2: I, <laughs> I assumed, um, but one thing, I, I wanted to point out one thing that RM brought up was the cognitive dissonance point, and I like that because it, it reflects romance in my culture particularly, because at one end you have people saying, don't do that, don't get involved in sex until you're married, don't, uh, you know, don't look at the opposite sex in a, in a very suggestive way, uh, stave off your, your instincts until you get married. Mm-hmm. And so uh, that that's tradition speaking, but then you also have human instinct. You have human instinct that kicks in and human instincts, it, it doesn't care about tradition. It sees attraction. I mean, if it, it sees something that's attractive and it feels attracted, And so then you have this cognitive dissonance that's happening all the time. And I think this can be very problematic, uh, problematic when it comes to romance, because then you don't know. And I think uh, I think uh, RM also mentioned this, but you don't know if it's it's if it's right or if it's wrong, and you don't because you don't understand what it is that you're experiencing. And if you don't understand what mm-hmm. you're experiencing, you don't understand the consequences of it. And I right. think another point that was brought up by Jamel, and it was beautifully brought up, was. That this, at the end of the day, yes, this is fiction, but being fiction doesn't mean it's not true. Being fiction just means you could take a real life experience and spin it, you know, just to take a real life experience, change a few names around, and you'll make it fiction. So uh, fiction is a very powerful tool, and it can change people's minds. and if it if done well, and it it could convey the right message. and if done badly, then it will convey the opposite and it could lead to extreme damage. And -hmm. so that's why I think um, specifically in my case, it has to be done really well. And by that, I mean, you have to consider romance in the lens of of, of, of my society, of my community. So you have to make it understandable and digestible for people. You know, don't be afraid to touch on the taboo sensitive topics. But you mm-hmm. have to do it in a way that's also respectable and doesn't lead to harm or damage.
1: Right. Right. Excellent points,
4: mm-hmm.
1: Mm-hmm. Akini. You had something you want to say? Well, I'm I'm just ready to get into their personal business a little bit. So go my ahead, Akini. A little bit. <laughs> oh. Kind
4: of wait. Wait. Hold on. Hold on. <laughs> <laughs> well, okay. I, I, okay. I then. You ready? <laughs> <laughs> on Let's go. <laughs> okay.
3: Um. But I. Oh, go ahead. What I wanted to say about, like, being able to see romance from an uh, intersectional lens. Um, For people, I think for real-life people, um, it's becoming easier for us to, like, see ourselves in romance. Um, We're obviously having more diverse authors um, publish romance. uh, But within the romance community, which is obviously where I thrive, Um, We obviously still have issues heavily with that. I mean, we just spent two days arguing about whether, you know, gay Black men or Black men, uh, queer Black men are able to be oppressed by white women or cishet white women. Mm -hmm. Um, we, We just had this whole discourse about even if you are a male does that automatically mean that you have the same privileges of a cishet white male in power which no but there were still cishet white women trying to argue that they were being oppressed by us um they were being you know because we spoke out about romance in ways that they didn't like which was obvious which you know one of the big points that started the conversation was cishet white women are making a lot of money off of gay romance whereas gay men are writing gay romance and are not getting even looked at um they're being erased and and we as queer men are getting erased from the romance conversations and uh one of the big things was for me is what i realized was there was a lot of times where i wouldn't speak I wouldn't speak up about issues in um, Romance Landia, which is the romance community, because I felt like uh, I don't want to talk over women.
4: Mm-hmm. But
3: only realizing that consistently, cishet white women were erasing my existence from the genre, so that they could justify the the stuff that they were doing, which you know was harmful to my communities, um, was harmful to me, and who I, and who I identify as, which was like you know, the, the reality is cishet white women are not being oppressed by trans black men. Um, so to have to come out, say that, and then continually be you know told I was wrong or being called a misogynist or, you know, it's just a man. Like being, your, your entire identity is stripped away when you try and talk to cishet white women in this community. Um, because they need to see you as only a man. And obviously the default, when you think of a man is cis, het, white, right? So I have to be demeaned to that. Um, and it is demeaning, but I have to be demeaned to that in order for your argument to work against me, right? Mm -hmm. So you have to take away the fact that I'm trans. You have to take away the fact that I'm demisexual. You have to take away the fact that I'm black and indigenous, um, and you can, cause that's the only way that your, your argument works. And if it doesn't work, you take away the context and you cry wolf about, well, he's a misogynist
5: because mm, he called uh-huh. women,
3: Well, no, I called cishet white women out for, again, commodifying an experience that they don't vibe with because, and it's not because, it's not always because they actually care about the relationship, a lot of you know you write it because you're fetishizing gay men because mm-hmm. it's two people that you're attracted to it has nothing to do with their love story. it has it's two you just want to see two straight guys kiss that's that was the thing that happened often in these conversations. <laughs> Nobody could give us an honest answer or have an honest conversation about it, and instead of just answering the question that was that was asked, they tone policed black men. Um, They, you know, called us misogynists. They took away our identities. They, they stripped it down to the bare minimum. Um, They kept changing the, you know, moving the goalposts and changing the points and nobody had a valid argument for what Mm -hmm. the question that was being posed. So it, it, within the romance community. No, we're not looking at it intersectionally. Like, we're not looking yes. at it intersectional because we are consistently, especially for, for men in the genre, we're being pushed out, we're being erased. Yeah.
0: And I've often I've often I, wondered why men most male male romances are written by women, particularly a large amount of them are white women. There's a small pocket, there's a very small pocket of black women who write male male romance, and I often if they do, I often think they do it a hell of a lot better than because they ha, most times they're writing black men too, um, and so I feel like they're doing it better than mm-hmm. say um, a cisgender white woman Cause I, I, well, for what i told my friends, my, my friends who are queer, who, who read male Romance, they're like, they don't get the mechanics right. <laughs> the mechanics are never right. You know what I'm saying? The, you know, when you're writing romance, you have to have the mechanics right. You know what I'm saying? If, if you're doing any type of intimate scene. But or they writing, think
3: it's right. Like, that's the crazy part is they think it's right because they, they think it's they've right. Removed, they've gone in that whole conversation, they were constantly going to gay men and telling them they didn't do it right. How would you know? How mm-hmm. would you know better than him? <laughs> right, That's his right. experience. Exactly. So you're, you're sitting there <laughs> trying to tell a gay man he doesn't know the mechanics of gay sex. <laughs> what? That's, like, that's, wow. how, that's how high on the horse they are. Mm. That they think that they're doing the right thing and they're not. Like, that's how far. I, that's how far you have to go off plot to make your argument sound right yes yeah. like yeah that's a lot of work i don't, i i'd be exhausted if i had to lie to myself like that every day but you know yeah you got the time and the resources yeah yeah,
4: <laughs> yeah. right
6: the so, um go off of everything you said i agree with literally everything you said i have constantly with all of my friends or with not necessarily all of my friends, but with a good number of my friends, I've talked about this specifically with what you're saying of the erasure and the conflation because I have constantly, um, so just to get through everything with me, I'm uh, black by gender, uh, which is which is under the non-binary umbrella, um, trans in the way that people would view me that way but i don't necessarily id that way bisexual um and also disabled uh both visually and then invisu- and then visually uh neurodiversion as well with adhd and all these sorts of things so for me with all of my just varying intersecting identities i am constantly worried about stepping on eggshells and with making, because I have constantly said and constantly vented that if I were to say um, some of the things that are on my mind, which is what you are basically saying, RM, about just the, well, for lack of a better word, demonization um, of marginalized men in just any capacity in any community then I know that I would get immediately demolished my identity would be Mm. conflated it would be why it would be why is this man saying what he is oh my god he's just a man he's being misogynistic and all this and all that without considering the fact that for lack of a better for uh uh Non cliched way, non cliched way to say this: I'm not like other boys, <laughs> um, <laughs> which is true. I'm not because I'm not a yeah. boy. I have been, I've, I've grown up around women my entire life. I am the only boy, boy in a family of all girls. I'm the youngest. I have always had a fab friends, predominantly all AFAB fab friends.
4: Mm-hmm.
6: Um, and I have always been very comfortable talking about um, sex and body parts. And I have constantly helped my friends with their own periods and have constantly talked and listened to them about their own periods and everything like that. And all these sorts of things that other men wouldn't really have much experience with or even really be as connected with. Mm-hmm. So um, that would get heated and get immediately wiped away if I say something that and for me, when it comes to me and writing this book and analyzing the romance that I've watched and enjoyed and analyzing the ro- analyzing the reason that I stopped reading romance as a teenager, it was all white cishet romance. It was all the same mm-hmm. sort of toxic, mm-hmm. annoying, awful things. There was one specific book I read where um it was uh, it was a fantasy, uh, and this girl had come across this um like dark brooding mysterious guy and I thought she was going to be like oh my god he's so hot but she was like oh my god this fucking creep and need him and ran the fuck away on her horse and I was like oh my god yes but the <laughs> fact that I even oh. had to be pleasantly surprised by that mm-hmm. in order to continue to be invested in this story just says something about the way in which privilege makes it so you don't see these toxic things that you internalize these toxic things and you just perpetuate these tropes perpetuate these ways of being and thinking without much analysis and repercussion and for me um in my books i over the past couple years because i self-publish everything i do i've been increasingly way more conscious and way more conscientious, it's making a much more concerted effort to include all of my identities and all of other marginalizations in my writing. The characters in my current romance are disabled, they're neurodivergent, everyone has ADHD at the, very, at the bare minimum. And something that I don't think is ever really talked about or something that isn't ever really considered in the main dominant space is the way in which these emotions affect the way romance is written, affect the tropes of romance, affect the way in which things are viewed, the way in which things are felt. My characters, they all feel things way more intensely just by virtue of having ADHD and just by virtue of how we Struggle with a lot of impulses and everything, including emotional dysregulation. We feel things way more strongly. The highs are higher, the lows are lower. We constantly hyperfixate on things. My character is also in a polyamorous relationship, which is something that we never ever really see in romance at all. Right. And it's just all of these. It's just all of these things and all of these realities of being that are being ignored and being conflated and. Um, My book also has, in addition to the romance aspect of the book, there's also an intense male-female platonic relationship, which it never ever goes romantic. It will never, and I actively have it in the book where the characters are saying in story to to other characters, no, I would never do the things I did for a girl. I would never do this for a guy. I did this for my own reasons. I did this For my family. I would not, Mm -hmm. I would not betray my entire country and betray my goddess, betray my religion for something as simple as romance. It has to be so much bigger than that. And that's something that like it's a trope that, like, oh my God, if like, you know, they say, Oh no, we're not gonna end up together. I don't like this person, they're gonna end up together by the end of the book. And it's just um just that conscious, just that awareness of the fact that a good number of aromantic people and even people who are full into romance don't want to see it embedded in every single thing just lifelessly without it being without it serving a purpose. If it doesn't serve a narrative purpose and if it doesn't make the characters better as a result, then it's, it's just kind of like why is it there? It's just part of the societal push of romance 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 without valuing the heart of the characters the soul of the characters the chemistry that they have the -hmm. fact that people have relationships and the fact that they're relationships that are like obviously this is a romance podcast but like um relationships that are also very intense and meaningful outside of romance and this isn't to talk shit about romance because I love romance but Mm -hmm. it gets to a thing of sometimes there's like an intense overabundance of it and it's just people feel like they need to have a romance in order for their story to even be published and it just strips mm -hmm. away the heart and soul and integrity of it because there are some characters who just don't belong together but they're being forced together because why we need to have a romance between a guy and a girl a guy and a girl can't be friends is that so impossible yes yeah. and it is even though for me i've always been very fictionally physically affectionate i've always done this with all my friends i've always constantly hugged them and played with their hair and laid with, and laid in their lap and said i i say i love you all the time to them but people would always be like does he are you two dating no he does this with uh, with everyone are you sure he does this with
4: everyone <laughs> and
6: uh-huh, uh-huh. It's just, there are all these things that are being completely washed out and wiped away for this one single dominant narrative that's perpetuated by the single dominant culture of white cishet in the case of romancelandia women and that one single way of viewing things and
4: Mm
6: -hmm. different body types is an entirely different discussion that also plays into this as well uh ableism disabled sex disabled romance disabled intimacy the amount of saviorism that is everywhere abundance whole bunches of topics yeah Mm -hmm.
0: yeah you touched on a a lot of things um Mail, because if you at the core of it if you're writing something and you realize that you feel like the romance is forced maybe you need to step away from it and realize you know maybe this isn't a romance maybe i need to reevaluate the genre in which i'm writing and maybe step away from it and say well maybe it's just general fiction maybe it's just it's it's just women's fiction which necessarily doesn't have to have a, a, a happy ending you know romance has to have a happy ending between two or more people um and you know I like what you said, particularly about it being forced, because um, oftentimes know. I'll read a book or I'll watch a movie or I see something. I'm like, "Y'all, why the hell did these two people end up together? There's no way in hell they should have even been together from the beginning of the movie, <laughs> you know what I mean? Or the beginning of the book or the beginning of whatever, um, you know, and that's a that is an excellent, excellent point that, that you bring up. Um anything else, anything else anybody want to say or, or jump I, in on
5: that? I wanted to, so many thoughts, so many thoughts. So if I can just, take <laughs> minutes, but also if I can add, cause Jamel, you said something, um, and again, how I kind of bridge my world and what I do to what you all do. And I'm glad you all are talking about representation and, and Tati that the fact that you did bring up intersectional, because even with Jamel talking about ability status, um, to work in a school of public health where we actually have doctoral students who are doing research about sexual pleasure among differently abled people and uh, people with special needs and what have you, because, you know, the conversation of we forget we're all sexual beings and and, 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 mm-hmm. and let's just full stop there. And I say this as a full, you know, you know currently able-bodied person to say that we fed into certain narratives. Like we see it in the media, like we see sex scenes between able-bodied people outside of you know, we then we can go right. to the racial side. We see white people fucking all the time. Excuse my language. <laughs> <laughs>
4: yeah.
5: But so, so when you're talking about other identities, you know, the fact that uh I have really fell in love with the series Sex Education on Netflix. And I know there's some even critique of sex education, but even this past season. Uh, when they had the character Maeve being intimate with Isaac, you know, you and you know, and how they even put up the conversation of consent into the conversation of her as an able-bodied person exploring, okay, what turns you on, you know, and asking those questions like, hey, you know, um, I know you're paralyzed from waist down, but you know, asking like frankly questions, like if we're going to mm-hmm. be intimate, can I, how do I know how to make sure that you're satisfied and pleasuring and what have you? And and them showing that scene. And so um, again, the inclusion of that, and then knowing mm-hmm. that, uh, we have doctoral students and actually faculty who are researching, having this conversation about sexuality, ability and disability going on also. Um, and then also when you talk about intersectional identities, I was just thinking about, again, young me, you know, uh, big family, you know, three boys, uh, five girls in my family would have you, you know, I never got into romance, never, but I I, I chuckle because of course I've read like black erotica. Like I, my brother-in-law had like a adult group, you know, for- <laughs> so I've read Zane and I even think about, you know, I even read, you know, you know, my sister had Elan Harris book. And so I think that was mm-hmm. even my first introduction, like when you talk about, and and one thing I appreciate about Elan Harris is on the spectrum, you know, just not only same gender loving, but also he looking into bisexual relationships, heterosexual relationships also too, and so when you talk about intersecting identities and which exposure look like, again, you all could probably say in romance that it's probably more visible now than it was. But I'm thinking about early beginnings, like even in the late 90s, early uh, 2000s, where was this start? And, and Tati and, you know, you Kenny, you all may know more, but I think about how to go from what I saw back then to even hear these conversations that you all have, and even outside of identities, outside of just Black why you would have you that we are looking at romance intimacy and pleasure in a more intersectional way than we probably was looking at it 25 30 years ago
0: Mm -hmm. it's been a Mm -hmm. slow slow growth to, yeah. to see slow trajectory to see that and like you said we still have a really really long way to go because you know communities like Mo's community you know stuff like that they're not being represented and in, in seen in in those intersectional ways like maybe black communities or you know right. what I'm saying, or or asian communities and so on and so forth um so we still got a hell of a long way to go um uh, we still have a hell of a long way to go as far as how we present men of color, men of um, different sexualities and gender identities in romance. And because romance is written primarily by women, um, it's a $2 billion industry. um, Mm -hmm. It's the number one, you know, genre, period, whether it be a romance movie, forget that a romance movie television show or a book it is still the number one industry or genre that gets gets the most money um we're doing we we have a we're doing a terrible job at representing uh romance that appeals to both women and properly you know shows men in ways that are not toxic Mm-hmm. and the ways of which are which are intersectional which are well i'm
1: curious toxic. Why why is it so uh why is the industry dominated by women authors i'm just curious what do you all think about that well i think that goes that i mean just to break
0: it down that's i mean the history of romance the quote-unquote mm-hmm. romance novel Oh, I'm about to put on my English hat. But, but the romance put it on. Novel, <laughs> the history of the romance novel. I'm an
6: English teacher. I love this so much. Yeah, I'm you know, doing, you know the I'm history of the, yeah. Example.
0: Yeah, the history of the romance novel, starting with, you know, the Brontes and all these other people, which are geared toward women who are writing for women. They call them the marriage of convenience novels, right? So mm-hmm. those are the types of quote unquote romance novels that women of the day, um, were into which so very very men realize let's be honest men realize in the publishing industry dominated by men realize you know what these books make a lot of money you know these books make a lot of money and you know I'm not gonna write it men were like I'm not gonna write it well who else is gonna write it women are gonna write it you know mm-hmm. and the idea and we have to also think about the traditional so the traditional definition of a romance is somebody who goes on a journey of self discovery right. Or, or somebody who goes on a journey of discovery, and 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 that that it still applies, but it also has to do with a romance. Has to do with this journey of two. Now, it's, it's evolved into the journey of people finding love because honestly let's be real when romance books were coming out quote unquote back in the day these marriage of conveniences it was about business marriage has always been about business marriage right. has always always been seen from the patriarchal standpoint of, of the benefit for men um marriage and love lo- love wasn't really heard of you know what i mean right these books mm-hmm. these books were kind of putting in love to kind of you know women kind of oh you know i want to not only do i want to be attracted to my partner and i want them to be rich and handsome and blah 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 i also want to love them so mm-hmm. thus that's when the kind of novel kind of evolved at the same time that space is just dominated primarily by white women who are writing for other white women who are at home who have the leisure to read these books black women women of color we out here working we out here feeding our families. For the past few decades, we don't have that leisure
1: to sit Mm -hmm, here,
4: that
0: luxury luxury to sit here for an hour, hour and a half to read a book. Mm -hmm. That changed, ironically, when the mass paperback was introduced. When the mass paperback book was introduced, like, y'all know what a paperback is, I ain't got to hold one up, but a mass paperback that was about this big that could fit in your, thank you, Mo, that could fit in your pocket that's when we was like oh a book can be easily carried around it can be accessible to anybody of any economic level it's fairly cheap to reproduce people who traditionally weren't able to get books romances things like that now have access to that so then the industry grew and even still you know it's still women-centered women writing it but still it was still white women writing it it Uh wasn't until the 80s and we had you know um i mean to be quite honest people like danielle steel and stuff like that um you know for black women it was beverly jenkins and uh you know brenda jackson who were writing romances it wasn't until those people started writing romances that it kind of opened up to people who are like not necessarily stay at home rich white women who are reading romance so that's just like the little history (laughs) (laughs) and i
5: wonder wonder how much of this and if we're being honest and this plays into gender stereotypes and 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 i'm just saying this as a black man also too and 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 of course as a nerd growing up stuff i read but think about it the stereotype that we as quote unquote, men, if we're going about that gender stereotype, are more visual. And so, yes, women, quote unquote, are going to read, whereas we might go to a porn hub or we might go sure. to, you know, yeah. and again, there's a difference. That's not romance. But at the same time, let's really have a conversation about even when we talk about hegemonic masculinity and what have you, and the fact that that is supposed to be the way we get off. Awesome. And I'm using the inclusive we. Of it and of all you know, along that line, is that you're going to be more visual here. Go to this porn site and get into Mm -hmm. this as opposed to reading a novel where you can have a slow burn or you can actually have intimacy and romance being written out and you can use your imagination.
1: Mm -hmm. That makes so much visualize
5: these things.
2: And Rory, actually, I I did want to emphasize that point. Uh, I, I don't think it's a preposterous point at all. I think you really touched on something important, which is. The reason why and yakini this is a response to your question i think the reason why the romance world or the romance literature world is dominated by women because it comes from a very sexist stereotype that you know women all women write romance and they can't write anything else it's kind of very similar to when you hear mm-hmm. men nowadays say oh well a nurse she must be a woman you know teachers Mm -hmm. are mostly women it it, it comes from this it sprouts from this very sexist stereotype that these types of genres these types of jobs are only fit for women Mm -hmm. and uh, for Mm -hmm. women and one thing another thing that tati kind of touched on was it took a few authors to kind of break away for this to become a thing and this is something that we see in publishing all the time. it's You see the same shit over and over and over and over again, Mm -hmm. the same churning, the same cliche tropes, until something comes out that breaks out, and it's because it's different. And I think that's another thing that we have to focus on is what is the next trope going to be? And and I think what I'm seeing or what we're seeing right now is this emergence of diverse voices. So we're seeing a lot more men in romance. We're seeing a lot of men of color in romance. <laughs> we're seeing a lot of LGBTQ groups in romance. And that's a really good thing. But it takes a breakout so that the publishing industry industry sees that money is being made here right. in mm-hmm. order in order for this genre to perpetuate and to move away from the... You know or, origins, regardless of their, you know. And I hate
0: that. I hate that it has to be Pizza. about money. Pizza. Money. money I mean, it's them. a
3: business. At the end yeah. of the day, yeah, it's exactly. And you know, multiple people last year, well, 2020, when I was starting to publish, multiple people were like, "Do you think that you should get a female pen name?" And I was like, "Look, I had a dead name for." 25 years if you think i'm gonna go back to that box
1: right i would yeah.
3: not write the fucking book mm-hmm. i'd rather write mm-hmm. something like the fact that multiple white women queer white women were telling me you're gonna need a female pen name i was like and even in saying no like it was obviously still i used my initials instead of a mm-hmm. full first name But it came to a point where I was just like, because at first, when I first got, you know, I kind of compromised on it. I didn't put my face on my social media. um, And I just had the initials. And then I was realizing that, yeah, like constantly when these conversations would come up, men were being erased. Like we weren't there. We didn't Mm -hmm. exist. And additionally, too, it was like, I'm not showing my face, but. I don't feel comfortable talking on, you know, issues. If y'all don't know who I am, because there is black fishing. There are people who pretend to be one thing and aren't. And so I was like, you know, I'd rather, you know, who I am. And if you don't like it, then that's on you. What the fuck am I hiding for? Like, it has nothing to do with me. Like whatever your biases are, like that has nothing to do with me. So... Uh I got real comfortable with being online and being myself and, um, you know, it, because it was just, it was either be, play this role and keep quiet. And I can't, I can't be quiet. Like, I can't be quiet. That's not something I'm, I'm capable of doing. You know what? Fuck it. It's an uppity nigga. That's what it is. Like, just (laughs) behind the screen. I kind of just pulled the mask off, and obviously it became a lot easier. And I still had readers, like the people it didn't matter to, like they were fine, um, because then it became the thing of I then I would have to um, constantly uh, explain or defend what I put in my books. Like you know, Drag Me Up came out, and obviously it's a trans Persephone, and a lot of the first reviews I was getting from white women. Both cisgender and transgender, um, more cisgender, obviously, um, was well. The trans rep wasn't good enough, and I'm sitting here like, mm-hmm. what does that mean? Like, she's trans mm-hmm. and she likes herself. You're mad because she hates her? She doesn't hate herself? Like, you wanted to see her struggle. You wanted no, p- to reject her. You wanted trauma. I'm not doing that. And I, I, I put on Twitter. I was like, look, I have a lot of trans characters in this series. I have a lot of uh, everybody's queer. There's not been not one non queer person in this series yet. Like there's been, uh, you know, I have 20 books in this series mapped out, not one non queer person, even if they are in heterosexual seeming relationships, everybody's queer and 98 98% of people are people of color. So if you're going to come in here and tell me that my, me representing my communities isn't going deep enough because you didn't have to see them struggle, this oh, is not yeah. going to be the world for you. Um, and the reason that I, you know, decided to take on Greek mythology first uh, was because there was this common misconception that it was a homogenous community, like this world, this civilization was all white which not true all straight absolutely not true and you have you know people who are too afraid like you put on you know all these in popular media it's always straight white people and it's like that's not true like people from egypt were going back and forth people from uh ethiopia were going back and forth like there were all these people and everybody was fucking queer everybody as like they had entire they had entire I mean. symposiums that were orgies that's what they were they were gay orgies everybody had a boyfriend and a wife at home like that's how it worked and it's I mean. like you're, you're you're lying you're lying to yourselves and you're lying to me and you're lying to everybody else so it, it's and that's what my whole thing is like my whole schedule is basically retellings and reimagining because it's me trying to rewrite the history y'all rewrote like it's me trying wow. to Take it back. It's not me trying to switch it up. Like I'm literally telling the truth. I don't know what y'all were telling, but I'm literally telling the truth. (laughs) And it it does get hard. I have so many uh, identities to represent because then, yeah, because then it's you know uh, neuro neurodivergent, and then it's uh, physically impaired. Like and and that was very brand new for me too. So when I was writing book two, which is Hephaestus and Aphrodite and Hephaestus is disabled, it was me and him going through my uh, process of getting a uh, diagnosis together. So as I was going through that, I'm writing him and I'm like, this is, yeah, like there could be somebody out there right now who is also with me trying to get a diagnosis for whatever the fuck is wrong. And they have got to go through 20 different doctors and they can't get an answer and they need this character to carry them through it. And I needed him to carry me through it. So it was very much, uh, you know, me saying, like, I want to represent my communities. But I also am only going to write what I know. So Uh because at the end of the day, the only way that we're going to get a more diverse uh, publishing industry with more diverse books is because you have to let the people who you're representing tell the story. You cannot continue to write people to tell our stories. It isn't going to work. We are going to continue to push back. And when Uh you start telling us, oh, you should be grateful for the scraps, we're only going to get angrier. And some people do. Some people are not, are, are going to be like, oh, well, at least I was in it. That's not me. So sorry. I'm not, that's not me. Um, That's not the people that I hang around with. Um, I'm very much of And it's, it's also this thing of like, if you put one person of color in the book, they now represent all people of color. That's not true either because I'm not like my identity as a black person and my identity as a Mexican are very different. First of all, I grew up in a very anti-black Mexican family. So I couldn't conflate the two if I wanted to, because to be both, I had to Either choose, like, well, what are you going to deal with today? Are you going to deal with anti-blackness? Or are you going to deal with anti-Latino rhetoric? What do you want to deal with today?
4: Yeah.
3: Um, or do you want to uh, deal with transphobia? Do you want to deal with queerphobia in general? Like, what, what are your doors today? What do you want to take out? And it's like, what the fuck? Like, I'm fucking tired. I don't want to take anything out. Can I just right. exist? And there are very right. few spaces. Because if you watch any piece of non-Black media, you have to do it with the notion that you are going to have to excuse at least one, two, three anti-Black uh, pieces within that, that media. There's going to be something. And it's, it doesn't matter if it's from a white person. It doesn't matter if it's from another non-Black community. The odds mm-hmm. of there being anti-Blackness, whether overt or otherwise, is very, very high. And then if you want to, if you, if you decide, okay, well, I just want to watch black, you know, black media, the odds of you having to excuse some kind of queer phobia is very high. So it's basically, well, what the fuck do I do? Like I get yeah. to pink. do you want to be queer today or do you want to be black? Uh, do <laughs> right. you want to be black or do you want to not be black today? That's right. the only option. There's mm-hmm. no, nuance, no gray area or nothing like that. It's a very, very small place. And then if you do all that and manage to get away from the queer phobia and the anti-blackness, and then you have to, oh, fuck, ableism. Like, so it's like <laughs> there's no winning. Like you can't win. Every single door you open something there's a gun pointing at you it does not matter which one so it's just it's just like now we're trying to write those stories so that people don't have to feel this way every time they open a book or or turn on a television or you know whatever it is but it's like yeah we have a, a very long way to go yes. a very very long way to go and and Rory's right like it, uh, every time something comes up uh-huh. like the, the white person in the group is always well it's not the impression Olympics guys. <laughs> okay, so then uh-huh. me. i don't want to be in the olympics either i want to go home i don't know what y'all are competing for i don't want that medal yes i, I want to be out of it like y'all can do that amongst yourselves i don't want anything to do with this because yes. I mean, that's what it becomes is like well you know we're all in this together yes until it's a black queer person of color because yeah. And it's like, you're not a great ally. Your marginalization, even if you're white, your marginalization, whatever that may be, does not excuse you from racism. And black, if you're black, you're, you know, your marginalization doesn't excuse you from queer phobia.
4: Yeah. Um, mm-hmm.
3: It's like, every time we turn around, it's like, if I'm not dealing with one thing, I'm dealing with the other thing. And it's like, there's no... Like you have allies in one ring and they will be your enemies in another. And it's so, it's so jarring because you'll be know, you vibing with these people and like, oh yeah, these are my friends. And then the next day something happens and they're like, you know, say something, whatever they say. And you're like, what the fuck? Like, I thought we were told, like, what happened here? So uh-huh. it's just it's like, it,
2: it,
3: it's so, yeah, it's so jarring.
2: And RM, sometimes, sometimes it happens in the same family. Oh yeah. Uh, in, in my well, I, case. Probably. Yeah. <laughs> yep. and that's when it's hardest because it's because then you're you're trying to reconcile well these are the closest people in the world to me they're my mm. blood mm. relatives and yet they don't really understand who i am or they don't love who i am so then that's when it becomes very very uh very difficult to to, to manage and cope with because you know sometimes you could say you can excuse some of those things you could say whatever they're idiots i'm just going to move on right, right. and you oh, can yeah. say i'm I'm going to adapt. Exactly. You have to you have to adapt because you're going to see it everywhere and the, and it's 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 just going to be crushing if you're going to take everything personally so you move on. But then when it's your family, I think I feel like that's a different story because then you start thinking, well, who in this world knows me better than my parents, my siblings? And then they come out with rhetoric that's
3: which you know, happens a bit in, you know, well, for like my journey through romance too. Yeah. I was always this feeling of, if my mom doesn't love me, who will? Mm-hmm. If my yeah. dad doesn't accept me, who will? Mm-hmm. If the people I love the most and who say they love me the most, would do anything for me, but don't want to see these parts of me. Like, who can I go to? Yeah. Can you trust mm-hmm. to love every per- part of you, because it was like I was 18 and realized, holy shit, my whole family has a racist ass nickname for me. Like it was like the most anti-black nickname in the world. Like, I used to think like if you've ever heard of the the candy sugar babies, they're little mm. chocolate covered whatever, yeah, like the
1: little caramel thing, right? Mm-hmm.
3: And I was like, I thought that was the cutest name in the world, and then I realized, no, they were calling you that because you were dark. Like they were calling mm. you that you were black. That's why it wasn't mm. cute. Okay? They were calling you that because you were different, and it's mm-hmm. it's that thing of like when you realize it later, like you're going through, well, me, I was going through therapy or whatever. And it was like, well, you know, is it possible that it was because of this? And you're like, what the fuck? Like, yeah, I guess so. Mm -hmm. And then there's like, there's no going back. You can't go back to a time when you didn't know it. Mm. So a lot of my interactions with my family are now very much very cold, very Mm. abrupt, they're very intentional. Like, if I don't have something to tell you, I'm not calling. And like the last time I went, like, and it's, it it, ha- it, it kept happening. So it was like, you would find out another uh, family member is transphobic, or you'd find out another family member is racist. And you're just like, what the fuck? Like out of, out of nowhere. And that's how comfortable they were. Oh. But I was, you know, 14, 15 years old. And I've got, you know, my friend, my, my family being like, well, don't have black babies. Don't have Black, don't have kids with Black people. And I'm like, I'm sitting right here. Like, you're talking to me. Like, I'm Black. I don't have a choice. <laughs> like, so it, it very much becomes that that thing of like, yeah, you have to kind of, you have to accept some of it. And there's really no way out of that.
4: Mm-hmm.
3: Mm.
0: Okay, I know we, we we've touched on a lot of heavy topics. Like we've talked about identity, we've talked about uh, the publishing industry and our representations of me- masculinity and identity. But we, let's let's talk let's let's switch it up. Let's let's get a little lighter <laughs> and talk about some 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 fun stuff. So Yaki,ni kind of kind of move us into some some lighter topics that you want to touch on. Uh, oh. For, for, for romance not saying this is not to invalidate because we have a we have a on our podcast we do have a, a side where we talk serious and then we have a side where we do all the fun stuff too so let's let's this this is the fun part of the interview where we get to talk cash it and have fun and and let's <laughs> um
1: uh, so what do you can what do you want to uh, start with well, I was curious. I guess everyone in their personal lives—do you all enjoy romance in your relationships? You know, is it something that you try to incorporate into your relationship? You know, or is it something you you might incorporate to make your partner happy? So, is that something that's kind of important to you guys in a personal way, aside from maybe writing or doing the research piece?
6: I I am a big romantic. A I've always called myself a hopeless romantic. Like, ever since, even since, like, elementary, um, there was, I had, like, in my brain, it was, like, basically always, like, this little, like, insta-love moment, kind of, of just, like, Uh me, like, you know, in the first day of school, walking into the cafeteria, and then, like, seeing this girl from across the room, and just being, like, oh, and, like, that was, Uh like, my first crush ever, her name was Shania Montero, (laughs) she's, absolutely adorable fucking lover even after all this time and like it just um I've always been a hopeless romantic which I think is part of I've always been hopeless romantic and I haven't ever haven't really had the most like luck with romantic relationships which is I think for me part of why I gravitate so much to romance as a thing when I like why it's one of my favorite genres but Mm -hmm. for me incorporating it constantly try and do it um even if like even if I'm not doing it like with like um an actual romantic partner when I do have a partner I am constantly constantly showing affection in several ways I'm showing it through words of affirmation which is a big thing for me because words is just a lot of the ammo that I kind of use in my own brain when my own brain decides to say fuck you (laughs) <laughs> um so like words of, of words of affirmation is something I always do. I'm always trying to like go and like help pay for things for people and like say, hey, if you need anything, like um let me know. Uh when I was dating my ex, um Eden, we like I would constantly just like sometimes like send them money. Um, even though like uh things would happen. And when I went to go visit them a month after we had started dating, um, because they were in Georgia. We spent five days together uh, just in an Airbnb and it was the most content I've ever been. We mm-hmm. did the most domestic stuff you could ever imagine. And it was absolutely amazing. And it's just like that sort of like casual sort of show of mm-hmm. romance and love. And affection that I absolutely just love and crave and try to do basically in every part of my life if I can.
1: Oh, that's awesome. That's amazing. I wasn't sure, you know, as a romance author or writer, if it was something that kind of, because I'm a psychologist, you know, that's my day job. And to be honest, after hours, I don't want to delve into psychology at all. People ask me questions. I, just, I don't want to be like a therapist off the clock, but I, I I was curious if you kind of write it and you teach it, if you enjoy it in your personal life. Anyone else?
2: I was going to say, I know I I started this conversation saying, um, I haven't really delved exclusively into romance, but I do include romantic elements in my stories, mm-hmm. and I'm not good at it. I'm not good <laughs> I, I I might be good at romance, but I'm probably not really good at including it in my stories. And th- the way I learned this was, you know, I work with my agent and I have friends who read my work, and one of the first comments they say is, "Holy shit, these people fall in love very fast." And my response to that is and, I, and I, think that's just a, I think that's just a reflection on, my, on myself and the way uh, I kind of grew up uh, was it was kind of insta-love. And, and people in our community, there's a lot of insta-love because, you know, by the mm-hmm. time you hit 17, 18, you're getting married, so you better insta-love right uh, uh so so for me it was you know very very uh very corny kind of romance it was like oh flowers yes i love flowers oh food yes i love food too um but i i like to think of myself as romantic i think uh growing up i learned to temper my emotions a lot more uh, temper my expectations a lot more so now i understand romance in a different light so just mm-hmm. just be, living in the u.s has taught me that insta love is kind of frowned upon it's not something that people people like and sometimes it comes off as super desperate uh and i learned my lesson the hard way
4: mm-hmm, mm-hmm, uh, so mm-hmm.
2: you know i take things a lot slowly now yeah, i kind of i kind of i kind of want to interpret it better because in american society it's yeah you don't fall in love that fast it's there's still mm-hmm. the dating, and then there's this weird stage of, oh, you know, we don't know what we are yet, and, and you know, <laughs> at the start I was like, what the fuck do you mean you don't know what you are? Love me, idiot! Or, mm-hmm. but, uh, but, but then you start, <laughs> you, you see you see the, you see the good in that. You see the good in waiting and, and and enduring because then you, then you start noticing the good and the bad of the other person because insta love can be problematic because then you don't know the other person that you're with. So mm. yeah, I like to think of myself as a romantic. I like, you know, people buying me food and flowers and shit. Why not?
3: <laughs> yes. Anybody else? In same ways, like I definitely have been a hopeless romantic, but I also was like always, this has to be the one. Cause that's, this is it. This is the only chance I get. And like, <laughs> especially like going especially after going or starting to go through transition and like oh. then also having like getting into therapy and working out my childhood shit i realized one i'm demisexual i haven't been in love with anybody except for well my last ex we but we'd been friends for 4 years so i realized like i was just i was really kind of trying to make myself settle because i was in this i, I had this idea that my first girlfriend had to be the only girlfriend I ever had because I would never have another one I would never have another chance like uh you know, and obviously that wasn't true because I was in a lot of relationships, but it was basically um uh, you know feeling like I couldn't be myself for one um but also mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. like uh I couldn't really show my emotions really well because like my family, the way that they showed love obviously was providing. So yeah, it was a lot of money thrown at a lot of things. Oh, I hurt you. Here's $20. Oh, you didn't like the way that I talked to you today. Here's $100. And like, that's fine. When you're a kid, obviously, you're super excited, like, fuck, yeah, I want money. I don't want to talk about my emotions. But when you're an adult, that is not a good way to go about things like that is not how it works. It does not work that way. So uh, it definitely now I'm still romantic, but definitely a lot more conscious. Of mm-hmm. what that means,
2: mm-hmm. and not just yeah. like
3: throwing money and uh, you know whatever at other people and expecting it to be enough. Because yeah, in reality, love isn't enough all the time. Like that's there are other things you need to make a relationship work. And now you know, for me, romance has definitely been sort of a wish fulfillment. In writing it, mm-hmm. because I get to write other people's happy endings, mm-hmm. but at the same time, I also get to, through my characters, kind of work out the shit that has kept me having a positive relationship. Because again, I didn't have a positive relationship to look at. Everybody in my family was married to people they hated, and <laughs> I was just like, I don't want this. Is not what I. I don't want this. Like <laughs> right, right, yeah, and then, yeah. And then it, it it came obviously trickled down because like you know my parents my mom and stepdad have no business being together but they didn't it was more codependent than anything and then you know it trickled down to us as kids and now we're adults trying to work through it and it's like we don't you know we're down to the root of the problem but it's like well you you can't fix them so you have to fix yourself um and does it feel like cleaning up other people's mess absolutely but if you want a relationship to work for you you have to do that work first so i think that yes. That's yes something i've learned through writing romance is like you it's not just about the relationship it's also about each individual in that right. relationship working on themselves and even if you know there's going to be relationships that don't work and i think a lot of a lot of my flaws that i legitimately had from childhood i learned from my ex so she at least had the decency to be like look i can't do this but this is why like she was able to um. have like, so i mm-hmm. i'm grateful for her for that forever because nobody, yeah. else, nobody owes you that nobody has to do that um but yeah the, romance has definitely been like something i've written through and learned through
4: mm-hmm. As, mm-hmm. As
3: a person and as a, a significant other
4: yeah, that's mm-hmm. beautiful. yes yes mm-hmm. absolutely absolutely yeah Mm-hmm,
5: i'm chucking mm-hmm. it to myself and because i'm listening to you know everybody speak and then because i know tati's gonna i'm like okay who's gonna hear this, this? <laughs> 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 one but so as i say as a currently single man recently over 40 uh and i'm gonna keep this short because yakini we're not gonna turn this into a therapist session okay. <laughs> my last ltr in 2012 and i say that as someone you know because of the pandemic and stuff like that so no i have not been on a dating scene like pre-pandemic when i first moved to indianapolis went on a couple of Mm -hmm. dates what have you and you know when you're a single black man you know people are always trying to hook you up you know and then they're always trying to you know wonder like okay you know because you can't be a certain age black man and be single after a certain age because people ask questions right (laughs) right you know and it's not even about you know sexual identity and what have you but i think as much as i would love to be a romantic in my head and, it's not, and i wouldn't even categorize it as hopeless romantic i'm still getting over um commitment phobia and i say this mm-hmm. as someone who was never a player or anything but i've been going back my mind and i actually had drinks with one of my high school buddies yesterday you know talking about and he's like because he was talking about mentioning, you know, you know, girls from high school, blah, blah. blah. He's talking about his current relationship and stuff like that. And he he would bring up people from the past. And I was like, no. And he's like, are you still reeling from the fact that so-and-so rejected you in high school? Like, and I'm getting deep right here. And I'm being vulnerable. And I would say this as someone who she's kind of reentered into my life. So it's funny how this comes back into play. My- um, wow. And not... I- at 42, gauging what happened to you at 15, you know, because that was very elementary with what could be potential now. And I, I had my mom laughing because I took a picture with my niece, and I say, "Man, we have biological clocks also too." And I am really mm-hmm. feeling very like fatherly now, like it that family planning more so than even being in a relationship is like went hard on me, and everyone say, like, "Oh, why are you." Mm-hmm. But yeah. I'm coming to grips with what that looks like now, particularly mm-hmm. since I've been off the dating scene for so long, negotiating my commitment fear.
4: Mm-hmm.
5: And, being, and and again, this is just me just being straight out vulnerable. And, and I can talk about this more so than 30-year-old me, than more so than even 25 or 20-year-old me. And the journeys I have had to go through, even with my, you know, sexual journey journey and being romantic and knowing who i am you know because i was all part of that true love waits back I, I mean i come back from a southern baptist convention so i have my purity mm-hmm. culture i used to feel bad about masturbating you know and i can say this now healthily because you mm-hmm. know i need health and, and, and it's allowed me to have these conversations about you know i need to work through this shit you know but at the same time you know I don't want to be 55, 60 and alone, Mm -hmm. but then at the same time, I've been by myself alone so long. I tell people this and I told my parents, like, I'm, I've been alone so long. I'm comfortable with it. And that scares me. If I have a fear, if I have a, a big fear, I think that's, what it is. And so I know uh, mm-hmm. much as I can talk to my students, talk to people, talk to frat brothers and stuff about relationships and stuff like that. And even in and, and, and the fact that even my, you know, cause I am one of the few, you know, outside of the divorcees, you know, the non-married in the group. And so you with the guys, it's always cool, but it's then it's like, on the outside looking in, when they are talking about their, you know, what marriages or partnerships, whatever that look like for them, and so um, that's where I am in forties now, and 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 I'm I'm better about it because I can say it out loud, even on this podcast, where I'm in about it, and 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 and, and, and just seeking out what romance can look like for me now at this age. hmm hmm
1: Yeah, I love that. I love that, and I'm especially struck by the point where you said just kind of it can be frightening when you realize that you've gotten so comfortable kind of in being single and on the one hand that's a great thing right we should be able to be comfortable in that but not so comfortable that we become so okay with it because that's something I struggled with too after my ex-husband and I were separated I just was so happy and content being single that I realized I was kind of closing the door you know some wonderful potential you know possibilities so it's like you don't want to get too comfortable so it's like that balance of being happy with yourself but open so yeah definitely Mm -hmm. so Tatiana I don't know I had some other questions about kind of like romance and sex and kind of you know I don't know. If the think, brothers want to go there, they can go I there. Think, I was thinking we should we maybe should table it for a part two <laughs> for the purposes of the time because I don't think we can rush that one. <laughs> just so I'm thinking that can be kind of the next time we do this again, and I hope that we do. So yeah. yeah. Beautiful,
0: beautiful <laughs> conversation. I want to thank you all for being open and honest and just forthright. Tell us where we can find you all on the socials. Um, starting with you, Mo, where can we find you on the socials? And your work
2: you can definitely find me on twitter at agent underscore mo or if you want i'd be very happy to see you on my website which is www.mo shallaby.com and that's m-o-e-s-h-a-l-a-b-i.com happy to see you soon
3: all right i am uh so i'm also on twitter i'm on Instagram and TikTok as well at RM uh, Virtues, V I R T U E S. And then my website is also www.rmvirtues.com.
6: Mm-hmm. Jamil? Um, so uh, I can be found on Twitter um, at author J Vinson, too, uh, J V I N S O N, the number two um and uh i have a website it's a bit under under construction under reconstruction right now Mm -hmm. um because i'm switching uh hosts but uh jamelvinson.com j-a-m-e-l-v-i-n-s-o-n.com and yeah Uh, i also have an instagram and all that but i don't Use it all that much, but then the ad is the same.
0: <laughs> Thank you, R.M. Thank you, Mo, Rory, uh, Jamel. Thank you so much for your openness and your honesty, and just coming to the podcast. And we, like I said, we've never done this before. You have blessed us with your your opinions and your your thoughts, and we we talked about a myriad of things. And hopefully, when everybody listens to the podcast, they will see that men absolutely do listen to romance write romance read romance and appreciate uh romance so thank you all so much uh, yeah thank you i feel like
1: my, i learned so much and I'm i learned to so yeah. much
0: yeah mm-hmm. thank you for blessing us coming on to our little little raggedy podcast <laughs>
5: <laughs> oh, ain't nothing right. This is hey. top notch, y'all. Y'all doing the damn thing. I
6: Excuse me, this was phenomenal. I loved it. I, I loved remember. it. this oh, <laughs> oh, was awesome. I'm,
4: yeah, I'm, 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 I'm being self-deprecating
0: here, but yeah, 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 But anyway, thank you all for this coming
1: on. Yeah, yeah. Want to just thank you all so much. <laughs>